What's up, YouTube? I'm Robert, and this is the Biker Bar. I did that right for the very first fucking time. And uh, this is episode four. I'm live streaming from the Sahara Desert or my fucking garage. Jesus Christ, it's hot. So this is the fourth episode. So the, that means that I've done this three times before. If you haven't caught the fuck on, this is the Biker Bar. It's a little weekly live stream that I'm doing now, um, talking to different people and hopefully entertaining you guys. If not, I guess fucking move on. There's plenty of other channels on YouTube, right? So this week I have Jeff Lenowski and he's coming to me all the way from the other side of the country, I think. And um, we'll go ahead and let him introduce himself as to who he is and we'll go from there. Uh, Jeff Lenowski, I have a channel called Trail Boss and I ride professionally for Giant and a handful of other sponsors. And I have a background in observed trials, so I traveled around for the past 20 years doing demos and stuff like that. And now I make a lot of videos and, and have fun doing that too. <laughs> so you said that you have a channel called Trail Boss. And um, actually when I was thinking about that just a minute ago, I questioned myself, how do you come up with the name Trail Boss whenever you started your channel? That's a really, really, really good question because Giant just released a new bike and they're using the hashtag Trail Boss for it. And I've seen a bunch of people commenting like, oh, did you give them permission or whatever? And the story behind Trail Boss is the guys, one of the guys at Giant, the marketing director, On Lee, was the guy who came up with Trail Boss. So, Contrary to popular belief, I'm not as narcissistic of a dickhead as people might think I am because I didn't come up with Trail Boss. Trail Boss was somebody that, a name that somebody came up with for me. And I was kind of actually like, didn't really like the idea until I pitched it to some sponsors as anybody could be a Trail Boss. My goal when I first started making the videos was to like show a trail and give you the intel of what it would take to, to do it, to clean it or whatever. And then that was the, the beginning of Trail Boss. Now it's evolved into how-tos and ride-alongs and, and all kinds of other stuff. So it's basically just like a clearinghouse for anything trail riding. If you like trail riding, if you like technical trail riding, if you want how-tos, all that, that's the place to go. You know, YouTube is, is an interesting place because um, I'll be honest with you. I had no idea who you were before, um, before me being on the YouTube channel. And I, I would say as well as you being on YouTube as well. I, I um, last week I had Richard from Stickered, which I, I believe that you're familiar with him as well. And he was telling me, oh yeah, this dude I know, man, he, he does some YouTube videos, like how to videos and stuff. You should really talk to him. It'd be a fun conversation. And I was like, yeah, everybody has a fucking YouTube channel. And <laughs> yeah. lo and behold, you've been around for like what you said earlier, 20 fucking years, dude. That's a long time. 23 years. Yeah. It's been, been crazy. Never thought it would last that long. How did you start out? Like you said earlier that you, you did trials. So were you just like some little little ground, like racing BMX bikes and, and, and doing little doubles and, or, or how did it go? Yeah, so well, first question, my camera's over there and I'm talking to you on my computer. Does this look weird? Like, do I look like I'm not looking at the right place? You look weird to me, so I mean, but no. Aside from everybody else, it's, it's cool. You're good to go, man. So um, I grew up riding BMX and skateboards. I lived in New Jersey. This was in like the 80s, you know. Um, so the freestyle world seemed literally a world away, even though it was just California. So 
I would somehow I fell in love with bikes. I don't know how or why. I just found a, a magazine one day um, and started riding BMX. Like my first bike was had like the plastic gas tank and looked like a motorcycle, and I stripped everything down to make it look like a BMX bike. Started doing tricks, got a BMX bike, and then I never really did it organized because in New Jersey it wasn't really a scene for it or anything. So I might have done three or four races my entire life riding BMX. But I would got to the point where every time I would buy a magazine, I'd try to like learn the tricks that were in the magazine before the next one came out. That you know, this is way before YouTube. So I would try to learn the tricks before a magazine came out. And then I was a senior in high school and I went to Macy's and in the swatch department there was a video of Hans Ray riding trials. Um, and it looked really cool because it, it kind of appeared to me like a combination of BMX and skateboarding, you know, it was jumping over stuff and and over stuff, off stuff, whatever. Um, so then I started taking interest in in trials, which is, you know, what I did, which I've done professionally for the past 23 years. So I was going to college. I Mountain biking was popular. So I decided to get a mountain bike. Um, it was actually like dumpster diving for my first mountain bike, actually. Uh, I just like pieced together a mountain bike and I figured for me being 6'4", a mountain bike fit me better than a BMX bike because I was starting to outgrow BMX. That's kind of why I got into skateboarding because I figured there was less of a height limit. I remember seeing like Tony Hawk was really tall. So I, I just like street sports like that. So I figured, you know, too tall for BMX, I'll do skateboarding. Then I got a mountain bike because it was a bigger bicycle. And um, next thing you know, I was going to college and thought it would just be for fun and I would ride it downstairs and over ledges and everything on the way to class and whatever, kind of just like imitating the stuff I did on BMX and skateboarding and and watching the Hans Ray stuff and everything. And then that summer I got a job at a bike shop and back in the, like this was probably like 1990 then by this point. And trials was actually kind of popular at events because people would do cross country and downhill and trials. They'd all do it on the same bike. And basically like, you know, while they were tabulating results and stuff, they'd always have like a trials competition in the parking lot. And the it's funny that you say that, cause I just watched this video the other day on YouTube. It was like basically like the history of, of mongoose. Okay. And they went through that same, same thing in, in the video where they were talking about, and it was like almost a trip down memory lane for me, but they were like, basically mongoose kind of came about because, they invented a better wheel and, and, you know, and then they started, you know, doing BMX bikes Yeah, and they were just really focusing on that. And then all of a sudden there was this like grassroots kind of freestyle and trials that kind of came up out of nowhere. And yeah, it, it was, it was just like, you know, kids, I think that that couldn't race or didn't live in a spot where that was available or whatever. It's like, Hey, let's go out and just dick around on our bikes, you know? And, I think there's a natural progression, obviously, like you said, getting bigger and taller. And I mean, I was six one when I was a freshman in high school and, and I rode BMX every day then. And the last time I'm, I'm only six two now. And the last time I tried to get on a BMX bike, I'm like, I don't even know how I fucking fit on this thing. It must right. be like a, like a praying mantis on a freaking like kid's bike or something, you know? Yeah. And nowadays BMX bikes are way bigger than they they were like if you see a vintage bike nowadays it's even tinier than a bmx bike nowadays like bmx bikes today are fairly large compared to what they used to be yeah they actually build them for adults now you know 
so that's basically like to your point that's probably why like i gravitated towards trials other than the fact that like you know i i enjoyed bmx and skateboarding and that was the closest thing for mountain bikes but it's also like a matter of accessibility you know back then it was just easy for me to go out every night and ride around the college campus a lot easier than it is to get in the car and drive to trails or whatever so i would do cross country and i would do downhill and all that but the easiest thing was to just hop on my bike and go ride on the curbs and benches and everything right in front of my dorm and apartment or whatever. So, yeah, that's I, what we, like we, we would go, you know, we, when I was in high school, you can get out of school and we go grab our bikes and just ride around town and hit all the local jumps. And you'd ride five miles to the other side of town. So you could do this one jump that would go over the street or, you know, this other, other jump. And like the best, best day of the week was like garbage day. Cause we just, ride down the street and do kickouts on everybody's recycling bins and just be like shitheads, you know, Oh, can you jump over that trash can or whatever? And, uh, my mom's boyfriend got into mountain biking and, and it was kind of like something I just did with the adults, yeah. you know? And other than that, it was like, Oh, I ride, ride BMX all the time. That's like what, what, what we do. And then the, the mountain biking just kind of grew on me and grew on me. And then after I got older, it was like, the BMX was, I'm not as resilient as I was when I was younger. So <laughs> the mountain biking seemed to be a, a better step, but I don't know if that was really a wise decision or not, but. <laughs> yeah. So one quick thing that you just to touch on what you just said, the two of the something, two of the coolest experiences I've had recently has been in the past month, I've met two grown men at different festivals who got into mountain biking because of their kids. So with you and I, it was always like you saw older dudes riding mountain bikes. So the younger kids got into it because of grownups. And I just met two like 40 year old dudes who both got into mountain biking recently, never rode bikes before, but they got into it because of their kids got into it. And one kid got into it because he saw a Seth video and the other kid just like was snooping around YouTube and found mountain biking and got into mountain biking. And as a, as a consequence, got his dad into it. And yeah, it's so because for my whole life, I've always seen dads get their kids into mountain biking, you know, because yeah. it was a grown-up sport, and then they get their kids into it. I met two dads whose kids got them into it. That's just so foreign to me. Like, I, I've met a few people in, over the last few years that are adults that, like, don't ride, didn't ride bike and then got into it. And I just, I, it, I don't understand that. Like, I always, like, I, I'll, I'll jump quick to the joke, dude, you're not American. How the fuck did you not grow up on a bike, you know, like? I just don't understand it. I really, it, it's so weird to me to think that somebody could be 40 years old and never really ride bikes, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that's one of the things holding back a lot of, uh, you know, so I started the Trail Boss channel two years ago. And, and the first first thing I did, like for the first year, was just to like, I just wanted a place to host these videos that I made of me riding unrideable trails, you know, trails that were, had, local legends or whatever is having these unrideable sections but then now i found it's like way more rewarding to like do how-to videos and stuff like that because you just like get all these comments from people who didn't know you know who are looking for that information and um just having that stuff on youtube is like getting so many more people into it like both those kids they were just snooping around on youtube and they and they found those videos and and their dads didn't ride bikes before that and um I feel like growing up as a kid riding a bike made it so much easier for me to like, so when I got my first mountain bike, 
I was 18, but I already knew how to bunny hop and kick out and jump and whatever. So I already had like those basic fundamental skills. And you'll meet a lot of guys now that like get into mountain biking when they're 20 or 30 and they don't have that background and they never take the time to play on their bikes with their friends. They're always like going on a training ride or going on a group ride and you don't want to hold people up when there's like a technical section you want to work on or whatever. And they, they worry about fitness and, and staying with their buddies and whatever, instead of just playing. I feel like if you just went out on your bike twice a week and played for a half hour, you know, as a grown up, you'd improve your mountain biking so much just by going out doing kickouts. I have an eight year old son. I still go out with him all the time. He, you know, he rides his bike and I still jump curbs and do all the, you know, just play on my bike. Cause that's what, that's where you like learn those skills and then you take them to the trail. I think, you know, that that's, that's a good point that you bring up. Um, I think it's kind of like people get, especially like in the mountain bike world, there's a lot of people that get really focused on the like ride time or like super pushing or things that we'll just, we'll just like roll them up into like Strava people, you know? And, and, um, I, I will say my favorite mountain bike rides are the ones where we just dick around and it's like, Oh, we come to this one section and we, we, you know, session it three times and we're like, Oh dude, do you see that line right there? Oh, let's try that. And then stand around and make fun of each other. And that's like, that's a good time. I mean, there, there's a time and a place to go out and like, like hit it. And, and, and maybe you're trying to do that for fitness reasons, but I think you grow a lot when you do like, just like you said, like you, you take the time to kind of screw around and, and there's different things too that like, when you stop and you look at something, you get like a whole different perspective of that obstacle. And then you're like, oh, wow, you know, like that thing that I just rolled over, now that I'm stopping and looking at it, I can actually see how big it is. So maybe this other obstacle that I would have been afraid of because the way it's at, where it's at, I'll, I'll feel confident in now because I, I took that time, you know? Totally, totally. Yeah, that is like when mountain biking first, you know, for the past 10 years or whatever, it was always like about getting on your bike and getting fit and, and you don't stop to smell the roses and play on your bike. Like you said, it's always about like get your workout in, stuff like that. And then mountain biking has been transitioning to more of a lifestyle sport. You know, it's about hanging out with your buddies. The bikes are getting better, longer travel. You know, they're more fun to ride. It's not just like this hardcore cross-country race bike. But then Strava came out and I feel yeah. like kind of cooling off a little bit. But yeah. even even I was subjected to that. Like the first year Strava came out, it's like every ride you go on, you want to like just hammer. And it was actually counterproductive because I would either go on a ride and it's no fun because you want to try to beat all your previous times. Or if I'm not really feeling it that day, then I would totally like lay up on purpose because I don't want to like kind of try and not, not get it and be disappointed. So it was just like screwing up all my rides because I'd either try too hard or I would purposely not try instead of just like going out and not thinking about it. So I like, I hardly even Strava anymore. If I do, it's just like to record mileage and just kind of keep an idea of like my Garmin uploads, but my Garmin uploads to Strava and I like it that I can go back and be like on a run where I think I did good, look at it and see how I did compared to some of my other stuff. But as far as like, beating times and stuff like that. There's really like one climb that I, I, I use as like a benchmark of my fitness. 
And that's usually really the only one that I like will get on and try to hammer to beat a time. Yeah. I never really came into Strava when everybody was doing kind of like what you said, because for me, I'm not a person like, like even when I was a lot faster than I am now, people would tell me, Oh dude, you should race downhill. You're, you're like really quick. And I would always be like, dude, I don't really give a shit about racing. Like the <laughs> only people that I want to beat is like just my buddy. You know what I mean? So I can just talk shit to him. And, and, and I don't want to pay to, to ride a trail that I could fucking ride for free. So fuck that. I'm a cheap ass. And, you know, and so for me, when I heard all the Strava like commotion going online, I was like, that's not for me. I really don't give a fuck about it. Right. And one of my buddies was like explaining it to me. He's like, no, dude, but it, it tracks like how you did on certain segments. And I was like, oh, well, I can see that. Maybe I'll check it out again. And once I did that, then, then I was like, oh, okay, I can see some value in this. But going back to what we were talking about before, like stopping and actually like seeing what's around you, like I can't express to anybody out there that rides bikes enough to actually do that. Like I can tell you every time I've had a mechanical and I'm sitting on the side of the trail, like I'll take that minute to look around. I'm like, wow, it's fucking beautiful where I'm at right now. Why am I not noticing that, you know? <laughs> Um, so I've been trying to go to more and more mountain bike festivals and like lead group rides and stuff like that. And I rode with you in Sedona the following weekend. I went to Santos fat tire festival and it was the first time I tried this and it, and it worked out perfect. And I've been trying to do it ever since. So like the common problem when you do a big group ride is you want to make it all inclusive. Like I don't want to, anybody that's willing to ride with me, I don't want to say like it's an expert rider. It's a beginner ride. And like, you know, I want it, I want everybody to come, but the problem is you're going to have experts and beginners. So if you just go for a normal trail ride, it's everybody's always strung out and it's like really hard to keep people together. And it's really hard to keep everybody happy. You know what I mean? In Sedona, you didn't like put a disclaimer of you could fall to your fucking yeah, death. I didn't, I didn't no. mention anything about death. <laughs> but the next weekend I went to Santos Fat Tire Festival. And if you've ever ridden down there in uh, Ocala, Florida, there's like all these cool technical sections. So I, I did a group ride. We had like 25 people and we would ride from section to section and we would section each, each section. So I, we would go and we would do like a rolling tutorial. You know what I mean? And it worked out awesome because if somebody was like a super beginner, they're, they're going to find all those tips super valuable. And if you have like the one or two super shredders, they love to show off for the rest of the crowd. And we would just like maybe ride pedal for five, 10 minutes, hit a section. I'd, I'd show them a line. People would try it, uh, show different ways to do it. So if somebody was like just a beginner, try to show them a way to break it down. And it worked, it's been working out awesome because then everybody's happy. You know, the, the beginners are learning something, the intermediate stuff, guys are challenging themselves. And then the guys who on the, on the ride who are super good riders, everybody's cheering for them. So they're psyched cause they're doing, you know, they're, they're getting to show off a little bit too. And I've been trying to make that my model whenever it's possible when I do group rides now, because rather than just the, the typical thing, you know, er, the, the fast guys hammer, the slow guys catch up and then we take off again. Yeah. Now we ride from section to section, we hang out and everybody kind of gets something out of it. It's been working out yeah. pretty cool. It, it was definitely really cool for me to ride with you in Sedona. And it was, it was interesting to see how somebody that's a trials rider will attack some some things compared to maybe how somebody that's just a mountain biker does. 
because like we went up this steep kind of steppy section at, at on the trail for the people that weren't there pretty much everybody except for us <laughs> and and you know most guys would kind of like look at it see a line and just try to hammer their way through that line right and, like i was watching you and you would get to a spot where you'd be like maybe you're like oh, i can't quite pedal over that next spot and then you guys instead of like trying to track stand for a second decide what you're doing and and muscle it up you'd like okay well i'm just gonna kind of bunny hop over this way and then i'm gonna hop up this one and then hop up this one now i feel like i can pedal and then then right away it was just really interesting i i'd ridden only one other time with a guy that rode trials as well and he did the same thing it was just like a a completely different way of looking at obstacles compared to how most people ride yeah i mean if I would I would guess that half the people that are watching have no idea what trials is because it's pretty obscure discipline of mountain biking. So whenever I do demos, I say it's not about how far you go, it's not about how fast you go, it's just about bike handling. And when you ride trials, it's pretty much all technique. Um, everything has like a you know one two with your pedal or how you pull up on the handlebars or like the timing of your hands, you know, braking and your foot pedal or whatever. So being a really good trials rider isn't going to necessarily make you a good mountain biker. I feel like being a good mountain biker translates opposite the other way. Like I know plenty of guys who are great mountain bikers that can translate into trials a little bit better than vice versa. But having those skills to, um, you know, be able to like stop and correct on the trail or, or like you said, do a bunny hop or whatever, they're invaluable. And, you know, so now I spend most of my time trail riding, but all those years of trials riding definitely come into play on the trail. Like if I'm climbing something and I have to stop for a second, it's not a problem to get going again. Whereas like, you know, most riders have to steamroll up and if they lose momentum, they're going to just unclip and put their foot down. Right. Yeah, I, I could stop and, and go again. I, I'm kind of thinking of like doing another tutorial about like how, how it's important to learn to go slow in order to go fast or some or something like that. Because like, Learning how to track stand, learning how to just do like little correction hops will help you on the trail. You know, there it's super valuable. Yeah. I, I think track stand is one of the most under or like underrated things that you have to be able to do on a bike. You know, I, nobody really talks about it, but like honestly, like anytime that you're in something hairy, like even if you're going through something that's really chunky, I mean sometimes you'll get hung up and you need that like second or two to get your head together. And, and you don't want to put your foot down. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, that's the name of the game, right? Like, that, that's like quitting. So it's like being able to have that that control to do that. I, I ride a single speed to work sometimes. And that's one of those things every time I get to a stoplight is I want to see how long I can track stand. Can I track stand long enough to not have to put my foot down? And yeah. it's a silly game, but it, it's, it's really, I mean, it, it comes into help. It really helps out on the trail when you're, Kind of tackling an obstacle that's that's yeah that's exactly what i was saying like commuting to work and doing those little things where you're just screwing around will totally help you on the trail yeah because you're learning how to track and you're working on all those skills then when you go for the ride on the weekend you, you got it down because you practice it so you um are are considered a professional rider and and in my in my um ed when somebody says pro rider I think like, oh, that's somebody that goes out and wins races, and you don't, you don't go and do races. So like, what, what is, how, how is it that it works for you? Like, what, I would assume that there's different kinds of pro riders, and and what, what, what place do you fall into? 
I guess it would be like how you how you generate income, I guess, which is from the bike industry. So when I first started, I was my sponsorships were based on competition and demos. So to back up, trials was always a very obscure discipline of mountain biking. So if you were a cross country racer or a downhill downhiller when I first started, there was magazine coverage and well, basically magazine coverage because nothing else existed. So it was very simple. You win a race and you get a picture in a magazine and you could kind of argue whether or not you get paid for the for the actual win or if you're getting paid because the win produces a lot of media around it, you know. But basically when you're winning races, you get paid. As a trials rider, there was no media coverage for trials other than Hans making some VHS tapes back in the day. Like, you know, it would randomly be in a magazine once in a while, you know, but not not very much. So when I, in 1993, I won, it was my senior year of college. There's a spider on my freaking lens. You little cocksucker. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, Kenny and focus on you because I'm just watching the little bastard crawl. <laughs> Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. In 1993, I won my first national championship at trials. And, and again, like I tell everybody, I started mountain biking in, in 90 or whatever. So it seems like it was very quick. And it kind of was, but I spent so much time riding BMX. I feel like all that, all those years translated over, you know, the year that I won in 93 trials, I always had trouble when I first started riding trials, when it was on natural terrain and it was like unpredictable terrain, wet, sandy, something like that. And it was uh, very technical maneuvers. That's when I would have trouble. If it was like a big bunny hop or a big gap jump or whatever, that's where I excelled because I would always street ride from BMX and all that. So in 93, national championships happened to be uh, in Traverse City, Michigan, and it was all man-made stuff. So it was totally perfect for me um, because I, I was able to do big moves and stuff like that. Um, so I won a national championship in 93. And then the next couple years, I would I got a couple seconds or whatever. So in 96, I got picked up by Schwinn to, to be a sponsored pro. I, had, I was working a job and everything like that. There's a little bit more of the backstory, but like Schwinn brought me on board and made it possible for me to ride full time. So they offered me a salary and can it was- you, Can you explain that to me? Cause like in my head, like by 96, dude, I thought Schwinn was fucking dead. What kind of bikes were they doing? Oh, 90, th this was the heyday of it. So um, if you want the full story, well, so in 95- like, Check it out, dude. I remember in, I'd say it was probably like 91, 92 was the last BMX bike that I bought. And I remember buying this, this mongoose and there was a, a Schwinn dealer downtown in my hometown. And, and they were like, just, it seemed like they were on the downward, downward. BMX a hundred percent. So in, in 93, I won the national championship. I graduated, I graduated college. I got a full-time job. I put together like a, conglomerate of all different sponsors and stuff like that. I mean, I used to like literally Xerox off resumes all day, every day and make phone calls, to California and like just cold calling everybody just being an annoying 22 year old or something. So I would have like a frame sponsor, a tire sponsor, an inner tube sponsor, crank bolt sponsor, like every single piece. And I thought it was cool to have like as many as possible instead of just consolidating. You know what I mean? You're like, I need, I need a, a fucking spoke nipple sponsor. Yeah. I'm, you're not even exaggerating. Like it literally was that bad. <laughs> so then 90, 94, I did like a privateer program in 95. I was still working a full-time job at, uh, at this company. 
and I sent in a resume to the guys at Trek. And in '95, Trek was like the shit. Trek, that if have you been mountain biking since '95? I, I started in probably 1990. I think is when I okay. started. So, yeah, so '90. 95 was when like Trek had all the OCLV stuff and they're like rocket boy stuff. And like, that was a really cool brand to ride for. Yeah. So Trek offered me a frame and a, a frame to do trials on and a complete bike to race downhill on. Cause I had my pro downhill license at the time. Um, and I was like ecstatic. So I went into the local bike shop that I had worked at part time, like through high school and stuff like that. And was like, Oh my God, I'm going to ride for Trek. This is awesome. Whatever. And they, and they were a big Schwinn dealer. So they said, well, did you ever talk to somebody from Schwinn? And I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody from Schwinn. They're kind of lame. Like, I got I got on Trek. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I had called some, I had called Schwinn. I had called like probably every single bike company there is to possibly call. But, um, you know, I was just cold calling and they, you know, just probably were, just said they weren't interested. Right. So the guys at the bike shop called Schwinn and they talked to somebody and, you know, knowing what I know now, they they just probably did it as a favor. You know, they, they told the bike shop, we'll give them two complete bikes. So the bike shop was like, Hey, Schwinn said they'll give you two complete bikes. So I was like, that's a done deal. looks like I'm riding for Schwinn later Trek. So <clears throat> it was that simple. Like Schwinn offered me two complete bikes, one to do trials on one to do downhill on. And they weren't cool at the time. It was, it was a, a decent bike, but it wasn't anything special. Right. So, now fast forward to like May or June or something like that. There's a big bike festival going on in New York City. So a lot of the guys from Schwinn went out to, to, to the bike festival because they were sponsoring it. The bike shop that I got the deal through had a like a spring sale or something going on. And, and just as like a thank you, I was going to do a trials demo at it. So I got a couple picnic tables and some barrels and things like that. And I did a, a demo in front of the bike shop. So probably like the first demo I ever really did. And the guys from Schwinn came and watched, and I guess they're you know they figured I was I was pretty decent. And right then, back then, like the only other person doing trials demos was Hans Ray. So if you went to like conventions and stuff back in the day, Hans would always be there doing doing his trials demos and stuff like that. So I was doing one at the bike shop. They saw it. They thought it was pretty cool. Um, so they put me in touch with their PR agency, and then right around June, July was when they were doing this huge push because it was Schwinn's 100th year anniversary. So now they brought back all this like heritage stuff. So like all the bikes that we remember as kids, like Schwinn Stingrays and all that kind of stuff. The metal and all that shit. Yeah, like all those metal flake paint jobs. They took that stuff and they put it on, on high-end mountain bikes that they were just introducing then. So they had a banana seat on the high-end mountain bike? Well, they'd have like a normal mountain bike seat, but it would ha they would have the sparkly vinyl cover, you know? Yeah, I'm just fucking around. <laughs> and then they'd have like a bass boat blue, like high-end frame and stuff like that. So they put me in touch with their PR agency and, and they got me on a show called FX Breakfast Time. And Tom Bergeron was the host, he, the guy from like Dancing with the Stars and everything. Um, yeah. And I did a, you know, I just went in and did an interview talking about mountain bikes and Schwinn's 100th year anniversary and it went pretty well. So then a couple weeks later, they booked me on the Today Show. So I just built up some boxes and went and did a, a demo for the Today Show, not really thinking, you know, the magnitude of it or whatever. Right. A couple weeks later, they're like, hey, can you, can you do Regis and Kathy Lee? And I was like, sure, I'll do Regis and Kathy Lee. And all this stuff was happening because it was Schwinn's 100th anniversary. 
Like that was the story. Right. And then, and then I was a pro rider that like had a title to back it up. So it was like, you know, American rider with a pro title and then twin twins hundredth year anniversary. It was a pretty easy PR pitch back then. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I, I think what you're getting at then ultimately is it was really building you because you were getting all this publicity because you were being the person that was in front of all of them. Exactly. So had I written for Trek that I might not be sitting here today because yeah. within the first six months of riding for Schwinn and I was still working a full-time job. So whenever I was doing this, I would ask for off on Tuesday or off on, can I get off on Thursday to go do Regis and Kathy Lee? You know, like I, I had a full-time job. Right. And then I would use my vacation time to go do trials competitions. Um, so at the end of that, so halfway through the summer, I did those, those morning shows and Schwinn put me on like a $500 a month retainer. And I was, I was living at home with my parents and I had a job. So I was like, sweet, that's $500 more. I'll just save that and whatever. And then did it through the rest of the year. And then when December came around and we started talking more about like the, the following year, I just said, you know, I could do this a lot more. I could do more for you if I didn't have to go to work every day. <laughs> we had the conversation like, well, how much do you make at your job? And I told them, and then they're like, well, we can't pay you that, but we can pay you this to ride full time. And if you do demos at bike shops, then you could make up the difference. So that was 23 years ago. So my first contract with Schwinn was basically to just go around and do as many demos as possible. Like you're basically like a touring band, any kind of mountain bike festival, bike festival, bike shop, whatever. I would hit up all these all these people and ask if they want to hire me to come do demos. And so they didn't really care about the competition results so much, but you got the demos because of the competitions. You know what I mean? So that was always the big thing. Like back in the day, like just to, to fill in the gaps for some people, you're yeah. just like, so go I, would to, I would go to like your local bike shop with a trailer and all bunch of ramps and boxes and things. And I would do, you know, do a riding demonstration, do a trials demonstration. So ride over all this stuff. Right. Then get them some like they'd be able to get all the kids in town to come down and get all amped up about riding bikes and just like you'd watch a free, exactly just like you'd watch a freestyle show back in the day right when they'd hit quarter pipes and ramps it was the same thing but on boxes and balance beams and things like that right, so right. the riding so not a demo where you demo bikes a, t a presentation right and right riding presentation so um so the thing that like a lot of the riders never realized was back in the, back then was that like trials by nature, nobody cared about trials competition results. You, so like I would, I would get beat by people and I, and I like, I'm friends with them now and they would be like jealous. Like why is Jeff sponsored by Schwinn? You know, I should be sponsored by Schwinn. I beat him in the last competition and, but they would just, they would only compete. They wouldn't do the demos. And I would always say like, you guys, you, you have to realize that like the competition isn't the finish line. The competition is the starting line. Like you win the competition and you take that accomplishment and then you go and do something with it. You call up a bike shop and say, hey, can you bring me in? You know, let me come into your shop and do a demonstration because I'm national number one or three or five or whatever. Like, yeah, I, I think what you're saying there is really key. Because um, I'm friends with Andrew Taylor as well. Do you know him? Yep. And and um, I think he did something similar. You know, he built a really big name for himself by his racing and being in Rampage and stuff like that. 
Right. But now I don't really think he even races. I, I, I know right now he's driving around the country making right. a film of him driving around the country riding bikes in every state. Like, and, and they're, he, he's being sponsored to do that. Like, that's fucking dope, dude. You know? So it's all like, it's all in the activation. If you, if you, if you were a cross country racer or a downhill racer, all you had to do is win, stand on a podium, go like this, and your picture would be everywhere. And you did your job. But with trials, you can win an event, go like this, nobody cares, nobody sees it, except for the people at the event. Like, we would have decent crowds. But unless you went out and did, did a promotional tour, it didn't really mean anything or didn't have any value to anybody, you know? Yeah. So I was one of the only American riders like touring around doing trials demos. So that's what I did from 95 into 2000. And in 2000, like I had a signature bike that was just ready to come out called the Schwinn Hip Hop. It was like a, it was going to be like a street trials bike. So like a precursor to, you know, for viewers watching, like this was Danny McCaskill in 2000, you know, like, uh, Brian Leach and myself and Martin Ashton, like we were the, the grandfathers or godfathers of that street trials movement, you know? So I had this Schwinn frame design called the hip hop. Like I thought I was gonna ride for Schwinn forever. And then one day I got a phone call that Schwinn went bankrupt. So I had a nine month old son. Schwinn went bankrupt. When you're a pro rider, you're an independent contractor. So there's no self, there's no like, uh, unemployment or anything like that. Uh, You're basically just screwed. So um, that happened in October. Home hard then, man. You got a little baby at the time. And- yeah, yeah. So um, by that time, now <laughs> I've been. So you were married, or you were with your wife, or yeah, yeah. So how, how did you have that conversation with her, dude? Well, I mean, I guess she just had faith in me that I'd figure something out, you know. Um, How'd you meet her? Just in college, like way before biking or anything, like not like, you know, biking was never part of it. She doesn't ride. So kind of nice because like a, a break, a diversion from from constant bikes and stuff like that. Right. What, does, what did you go to college for? Uh, I went to school for sports management. So it's kind of funny because like I'll I'll meet like a lot of YouTubers with successful channels now and I'll and I'll say like what'd you do before YouTube and there it's always like computer something yeah computer and it's like that makes sense and when I sit here and and say I rode pro for 23 years and I have a degree in sports management it's like oh that makes sense (laughs) right and like my marketing myself you know like I I I could think of maybe a couple times where like a sponsorship has been handed to me, but for the most part, you're always selling yourself constantly. So in in 2000, Schwinn went bankrupt. In 2001, all those companies were trying to get that business because Schwinn was a pretty big player in the retail market. So companies like Giant and Trek and, and Jameis were all like interested in having me do the same exact program just for them, you know? So, giant for that to, to matric- like to come about from the time that you're like fucking ass out on the street. Oh, that was October, and then I like went to Interbike. It must have been earlier than October. It must have been like September because I went to Interbike like hitting the pavement hard. Yeah, and pitching everybody that that because also the thing was when I did all that stuff for Schwinn, I I bought the trailer, I pitched the shops to bring me in. I would make the collateral materials to like sell them on a demo. So it wasn't like 
it wasn't like I couldn't provide another company the same exact thing. Just right, with right. So that was all you that was doing that. It wasn't them. You yeah. were you were basically running the whole program. Yeah, so it's a turnkey program, just like right. hey, instead of Schwinn on the side, Giant on the side. But the so big, how did you choose Giant, or did they did they just give you two two full bikes? <laughs> uh, so and the different the difference was when I rode for Schwinn. It was when I first started, so I didn't know a lot of people. So I signed one contract with Schwinn, and then they would they would get helmet sponsors, fork sponsors, drivetrain, whatever, and you would just be part of a package deal. And there were definitely times when I was on Schwinn where, like I said this on a Vital podcast, like I was going to do a MTV Beach House appearance. I was like totally stoked on, and like Manitou had just come out with this new fork, and I was at Mammoth Mountain. I had just won the trials competition at Mammoth, and like back then, those were huge events. Mammoth was like always had the best crowds and whatever. So I win the trials event. I'm doing MTV Beach House like Tuesday or something like that, and they have this new fork, and I like wanted. I was trying to get the fork because I thought it'd be cool to have on my bike for MTV Beach House. Right. And, but they like they didn't care. All they cared about was racing. So they're like, oh, it's you know it's accounted for for this girl race or this guy race or whatever, and and I'd be like, what the fuck, like. I, I'm going to be on MTV Beach House, but they didn't care, you know? Yeah. It's so, interesting. I mean, like what you're saying there is similar to, I think, what some of the YouTubers are up against right now is, you know, bike companies have to come through an evolution to to understand, you know, how to market. And um, like right now, you know, you, you have a little bit of that where it's like somebody even like Seth potentially, you know, who has a huge audience maybe isn't getting, you know, getting hurt by by some companies because they just don't see it yet, you know, and even some of the companies that I've talked to, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little fish in a big ass pond at this point. But I mean, sometimes it's like I talk to companies and like their social media people are like, Oh, dude, we get it. You guys are freaking dialed. You guys are bringing a lot of value. And it doesn't matter that you're not a, a pro rider or or you know some super fit dude or whatever it is like they get what what it is that we're doing but other companies are like whatever dude go fuck yourself we got our marketing money's over here you yeah know? i think it you know some of it is ignorance and some of it is the product you know so i think there's certain youtubers out there that have gotten partnerships that align perfectly with the audience that youtube reaches and there's some products like i don't think you're gonna see a YouTuber get sponsored by like Intense tomorrow or something like that. You know, it's like too core of a brand. But yeah. for Seth, but for Seth, Diamondback makes like a hundred percent sense because his demographic is the dude that's going to go into a, a Dicks and buy a buy a, a Diamondback. You know, it's, he, has a, he has a lot of really young riders too. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of first time riders. So that's like a perfect perfect um, match relationship or whatever. It wouldn't. It probably wouldn't be as effective for him to promote some super hardcore brand, but it's right. it's not what he is, you know. So it's it's perfect. I think I think his partners are aligned with with, with the demo that hits perfect. So how it's, does Giant feel about you and your YouTube channel? Um, there's people there that are way into it, and there's some people that that don't really care. I do the YouTube stuff, so I guess let me just finish my my. My tr my career really quick because it'll it'll all make sense now. So go ahead, finish up uh, your career, dude. I yeah, mean, it was like twenty years ago when you won the ninety. My career. So all right, twenty two more years to go. Um, 
So Schwinn went bankrupt, and I wasn't really interested in – and when the last two years I was on Schwinn, so 90, 93, I won a national championship, 94, 95, 96, 97. I was always like second and third. And I was like always trying to like street ride with my friends and dirt jump and like just not focus on trials. And I'd always go to these events and like always I'd be hot and cold, but I just could never pull off like another overall. So 99, 2000, I was like, you really got to get your shit together and focus. So I like focus all my energy on trials and they had switched to like a series instead of a one day championship. And in 99 and 2000, I won the North American Trial Series back-to-back. But in the process, I completely burned myself out. So then when Schwinn went bankrupt, I got offered to be in New World Disorder, which was like one of the the free ride films back in the day. There was Crank and there was New World Disorder. They they were like the shot shot on actual film, you know, like major production mountain bike movies. And there were two, two major camps back in the day. And these were the videos that like dudes that sat in every bike shop would watch all day, every day, just like wear those things out. So I got offered a part in one of those videos. So when I switched to giant, I pitched giant on doing demos and just filming for the video parts. So the video parts would make, would kind of validate why a bike shop should bring you in because you were, you know, in these videos that they watched every day. So that, even though it wasn't like a competitive thing, that was why I was like a pro cyclist, you know, filming those video parts. There was like 12 people in the world that got in these parts, you know, got in these videos. And, uh, I was lucky enough to be one of them. And then other, so other than filming for that video part, I might do other video projects or something, but I would just do demos at bike shops. Uh-huh. And that's, and I would hop in a, a competition occasionally here and there speed trials, like where you race trials, race or, you know, occasional trials competition or whatever. And then that's what I did until probably 2010 or something. It just got to the point where the video, like when we first started filming these free ride videos, I can go to Germany sight unseen and spend one week and crank out a video part. You know, the level of riding wasn't to the point yet where you had to like do such crazy shit. You know what I mean? I could roll into a town and just roll around with the cameraman and be like, that looks cool. That looks cool. Let's film it. And in a week, bang out a section. But the level of riding kept getting higher and higher and higher. So the last, if you ever go on uh, YouTube and search Lenoski New World Disorder, you can see like the progression from like two, three, four, five, six. When it got to like seven and eight, I would basically make like a hit list. And I, I shot everything around New Jersey, Philadelphia, New York, like where I lived. So that I could like spend all your scouting stuff. And then I'd still only have a week with my cameraman, but I would have like a list of exactly what I wanted to do. And I would like put them in a list of like danger because I'd be like, well, this is the one I'm probably going to kill myself on. So I'll do that one last. (laughs) We would spend like a week banging out these sections and you know, then you'd go to Interbike and they'd have these huge premieres and like, you know, everybody in the bike industry would see it. And it was awesome. It was a cool time. But that was also the time when YouTube started getting popular and Danny came out with his first video. And I started to see that like, I would have like one week to film a part and it would take me a year of planning to do it. And I would be trying to do like, at the time, maybe 100 to 150 in-person demos a year. And it just wasn't adding up. So I kind of bowed out of that New World Disorder video series at eight. I was like, that's, so if you want a YouTube NWD eight, 
that was like my my uh farewell my the best <laughs> the best segment i ever did cranked that one out i was happy with and i just figured I'll, I'll go out like that um so then i would still do trials demos like my biggest responsibility even to this day for giant is going to dealers and doing in-person trials demonstrations or group rides but just interacting with consumers and dealers and stuff like that so then i started i broke my leg and i wanted to start doing more trail riding and just always having like a complex of like needing to validate myself i figured well if i'm going to do i was riding for fox at the time i couldn't like street trials too much because i broke my leg so i started doing some photo shoots trail riding and i didn't want to just like ride trail if i didn't have any reason to be riding trail so i figured i'd start racing enduro so i started racing enduro probably 2012 or something like that and it was because i started doing these photo shoots for fox at the time and from 2012 to 2016 or 15 or whatever i would do pretty well in, in like anything east coast regional i could podium in a in a pro enduro like very consistently won some overalls and like some big series and stuff like that but i would still do trials demos on the side because that's always been like the one, the one thing that i could do that nobody else really offers right uh, so over all the years giant would always be like oh you did a cool video part sweet but the demos are what nobody else is doing oh you wanted a duro that's cool but the demos are what nobody else is offering you know that's always been what set me apart um so I'd always race enduros, and then, two, like three years ago, I was training to to defend. I think defend, or maybe I got second the year before, like in the overall. I was training to like come back, and my last training ride before I was gonna race the following weekend, I was just kind of daydreaming, riding down the trail, not really paying attention. And I clipped a sapling, and I fell and broke my shoulder. So I missed that whole um, that whole fall of enduro racing, this East Coast Triple Crown, which was like a pretty big goal of mine. And then this, then the following year, I had been talking to the guys at Pink Bike for a long time, and they kept trying to encourage me to do a video series, thinking more street trials. Uh -huh. and they'd always say like, you know, people want to see Lenoski ride street trials, and I would always try to wrap my head around like, well, how many, how often are you going to crank out a street trials thing? Like even Danny and Chris Ackrig, like you're good for one a year. You know, it's not like a series, like maybe one a year um so i wanted to do something a little bit more sustainable and, and since i've always traveled around to bike shops when people started seeing me race enduro and like trail ride more it started to become like a recurring theme like when i go to bike shops people would always be like oh i got the trail for you you know such and such nobody can do this climb or oh i i know the trail for you there's this rock section that nobody can make it through and i thought that would be a cool idea for a video series so then Two, it was about two years ago, two weeks ago, because I got the Facebook anniversary thing, that I started Trail Boss. And it was going to be to do a video series that I could like pump out once a month or something like that. And then I didn't think of doing it for YouTube. I was going to like make this video series to give to Pink Bike and give it to MTBR, like more like mountain bike editorial stuff. Yeah. I just. I just put them on YouTube so that like I, there was a place to aggregate views, you know? um and they did good on like they did really well on facebook and then on youtube they'd get like a, a little bit of views because a lot of people would share them but um i, I didn't thought that was interesting when i met you that you had said you were like look dude i started my youtube channel and for like a year i had like 
800 I didn't understand what the fuck is going on. Like, I've been riding bikes for 20 years professionally. What the yeah. hell is the deal here? Yeah, and I mean, it's and it's just it's it's just like it's because you're old school and generational, and and I've learned so much in the past years, and it's been an awesome journey. But like, I came from a world like no fault of mine that like for my entire career it was like hey you're you're the guy in this video that's it you don't have to compete against anybody like you're the trials guy like there weren't many people doing trials so if you watch a new world disorder it was all like guys hucking off clips and cliffs and one trials guy just me right so like you don't have to compete against anybody you just like do a part and then ryan leach would do a segment in pranked i would do a segment in new world disorder and that was it. Like it wasn't like nowadays where you put a video on YouTube and everybody's putting videos on YouTube. So when I started a YouTube channel, like I thought like I've been riding so long, like of course people are gonna look for a Lenoski video, like not being a dickhead. I like it's just Yeah, I'm no, not. I mean it, it would be expected, dude. If you've been yeah, riding professionally that long, you would think, Oh yeah, dude, I should just be able to like then, people should be searching that. Yeah, but then you realize that like people aren't sitting around thinking Lenoski, you know, like, and, it, and, and like, reality check, motherfucker. I honestly, I honestly mean it from like the bottom of my heart. The coolest thing ever is like, I still get like every day I get messages like, just discovered you. And like at first, two years ago, I was like, how did you just discovered me? Like, I'm, do, I'm doing something wrong if you just discovered me. But now I think it's like the coolest thing ever because you realize it's like a totally different audience. And it's always like, guys our age or I'm older than you, like guys, you're whatever, like it's cool that like they're learning about you and they're just finding you now. Like it's, it's crazy. It's awesome. YouTube is interesting, dude. I mean, I, I, um, I've been on rides with guys that are freaking like pro professional riders and, and have a fair amount of a following because of that. And we go out on the trail and, and I'm the one that they're like, Hey dude, how's it going? You know, it's, so I guess, that was like the longest way to answer your question of like, why do I consider myself a pro rider? And it's basically because I still do compete. Like I, I, I did a, I raced the U S open or not the U S open, the, the, like the pro GRT single crown class in the, uh, a couple weeks ago. Like I'll, I'll still race professionally, but I'm not like selling myself on those results. Giants not paying me for those results. Giants paying me to be an ambassador for them to go to, lots of bike shops and all their dealer meetings and, and promote their products. And I guess I call myself a pro rider because I'm not making any money off YouTube. I'm making it off of the industry. Like, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I wasn't saying that stuff like that. And I, would hope, I would hope that you didn't take it that I was saying that you're not a pro. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. Because like, um, you know, there's guys like Matt Hunter and, uh, are you familiar with him? Like Matt Hunter or Darren, well, Darren Bearclaw does Rampage, but like a lot of those free ride guys, they're more like creating projects, you know? It's about like they'll do film projects and like they're sponsored to be pro like that. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's just like some, yeah, it's like a, you know, in the skiing and snowboarding, it's, it's kind of like a new model to mountain biking because like mountain biking, we always race, but like in skiing and snowboarding, like there's tons of guys that are pro that don't compete or skateboarding, like half the pro skaters don't skate, don't compete, you know? It's you're out there supported by a company and you're like pushing forth, you know, media and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. No, it's definitely really cool. I mean, like when Andrew was telling me about like his projects that he's doing, it's like, 
wow, dude, that's like that. That's really cool. And I mean, like what you're doing as well. I mean, you're getting to travel around the U.S. and meet a bunch of people and ride a bunch of places. And I think that that's that's super cool to, to that the that there's room in the in the market outside of you know just um, winning races and stuff like that. Yeah, so, and switch gears on you because you you took like freaking 95 minutes to answer one question <laughs> a long time. I, I don't know how to i can't whittle it down much quicker it's all right dude i'm gonna have to give you a class uh, the chat was saying uh when whenever you were you were going on and on somewhere around the the, the like the, the new testament when you got to that part um <laughs> they were saying you should do a video teaching robert or biker how to how to be a trials rider that would be a fun collaboration so i them on that next time you're out here we definitely have to get together and do something where you're not trying to fucking kill me so um aside from that though i, I do want to bring this up um I, I i searched your name on google right before we did this because i want to say the last time when i did my video with you in sedona i spelled your name wrong yeah I thought you were Jeff Lenowski, not Lenowski. I mean, who the fuck is Jeff Lenowski? I don't even know that guy. <laughs> so, so I Googled you to see, to make sure that I was spelling your fucking name right this time. And I did spell it right this time. But I also saw on Google, it says that your nickname is J-Lo. Yeah, that was a pretty terrible name that the guys from SRAM came up with when I used to ride for them. <laughs> So, so you don't ride for SRAM anymore, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was because of that nickname. No. Um, yeah, that was something that they came up with. It never really made sense to me. It would have been like Jay, Le Jay Lee or something, not Jay Lowe, but yeah, Jay Lowe. Well, maybe it was like, you know, had all that booty and used to dance on freaking uh, in Living so, Color or something like that. <clears throat> Anyways, I thought that was pretty funny. So um, you, you ride for Shimano now or? Yeah, Shimano. I've been I've been riding for them for about ten years. They've been an awesome partner, and probably the best thing they've ever done for me is make brakes that work. They make brakes that work, <laughs> and uh, you know, aside from like supporting me and allowing me to do this for a living, which is awesome. They took me to China last year for a week, and that was an amazing trip. The people yeah. so nice, um, and the riding was great, and and it was such a fun trip. I had a friend that uh, went on a, a biking trip in China, her and her husband, they did like 10 days and they like rode all over the place. She said it was just, just awesome. So they ended up because of that biking trip, they ended up quit. She was an engineer and uh, quit her job. I think her husband was an engineer as well. They both quit their jobs and went over there to like be like English teachers. And okay. they're like, oh, we're just going to do this for like three months. And, and now they've been there for like three or four years. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely interesting. You know, I, I wouldn't like China's like when you say China, like if you're if I'm thinking about my bikes in China, like the only thing I'd be like, oh, maybe do some trials tricks on the Great Wall or something like that. But that's that's awesome, dude. They, ask, you not, know, OK, what? Because I'll go off on a tangent again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I got I to gotta fucking keep you in check this time. So you've been around the bike industry for a long time, you know, and in the bike industry, actually, like, so a little different than me, I, I just been from the outside. What are some of the things that have shocked you that has happened since back in the 90s when you started till now? 
um, as far as like product development or just or like what what are you thinking? I, I think you could you could answer whichever way whichever jumps to your mind. So if it's product development, like you know what what are some of the things that really like either it's the product development or just like the way the industry's changed or how it's segregated so much. I can tell you for me, I uh, I took a little about a ten year break, and when I when I left mountain biking like suspension was just brand new and like forks were kind of like getting their 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 handle i don't remember there probably was some like full suspension bikes but not many or not many people were riding them because they were like just it just seemed like back then it was like three grand for a bike like that nobody spent that kind of money on a bike right 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 and and when i got back into riding i walked into the shop and i was like hey i want to get a mountain bike and i'm thinking in my head like my my giant that I bought back in the '90s was like 600 bucks, and that was a good bike, you know. And uh, and so I'm like, I'm gonna spend like two grand. I'm gonna get a badass bike. And I walked in, and I'm like, Hey, I want to get a mountain bike. And the dude's like, So you want like an XC bike or a downhill bike? Or are you thinking like an all mountain bike? Or and I looked at him like with a really confused look on my face, kind of like this. And I was like, Dude, I said mountain bike, like like knobby tires, like. A, He's like, well, where are you gonna ride at? In the fucking woods, dude. What do you think? You know, like, and so like the 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 way it has changed like so much. Um, that was really surprising to me back then, you know. Right. Yeah, like basically when it first started, it was a sport to just like get in shape, you know. So I guess I was kind of there after the initial boom of like mountain biking, where it was big the first time because it was just a novelty. So it's like a scooter or whatever like people are just buying a mountain bike because it's like new you know it's right. a mountain bike then it was like kind of all about like an activity to do just for for training and stuff like that to get in shape but it wasn't like a big social thing so the biggest thing that i've seen is probably the shift to like everybody says like more of a lifestyle but i see it more of like a social thing like mountain biking has definitely got gotten way more social it's more way more common now i think to see people doing riding mountain bikes, but putting together rides to do it and stuff like that. And I think that it's a couple factors, like the bikes have gotten so much better and it, and suspension and brakes and everything. It just makes a, a more fun, comfortable sport and you can get uh, people to ride at a higher level than they were able to ride before. Like um, the, the whole like rise of bike parks, you know, all these, these uh, ski, ski areas becoming bike parks in the summertime. Yeah. It really wasn't feasible ten years ago because the idea of sending you or me down a mountain on a on these bikes from 10, 15 years ago, like we would have died. Yeah. And now bikes are so good, you can do it. You can have a family come in for a vacation to Whistler and like give them a bike, and they're they're going to make it down the mountain because the bikes are so better, dude. I mean, that's one of those things that I've been saying about twenty niners. I feel like twenty niners make the trail easier. So then, what does that do? It's going to end up having like people are going to want to make the trail harder because they're, they want that, like that level of, of like, yeah, it's hard, you know? So it's like, if you would take a still a 26 inch bike or 26 inch wheel bike on some of these trails that you're just like cruising over on a 29 er like you'd have that challenge again. Right. Like, like, are we going to ride, end up riding like 54 inch wheels because it's like, all right, now we're going to huck off this cliff, you yeah. know? Which isn't a cliff anymore because your tire just is big enough to reach. <laughs> but I think like, um, I think the bike development has allowed it to become more of a social sport, which I think makes it more 
sustainable. I like when I look back at my my 20 plus my 30 years of mountain biking, I sit there and I'll be like, oh my God, that's right. I used to ride with that guy. He he hasn't touched a bike in 10 years, or like, oh my God, that guy was awesome for two or three years. I feel like nowadays people that get into mountain biking, it's like more of a sustainable like lifestyle sport. It's about hanging out with your friends. It's about uh, exploring trails and stuff like that versus like where it was kind of like a jock sport 15 years ago. It's like, I want to do it to just to train or just to, just to compete. That's it. You know, like it's basically all when, when I first started riding mountain bikes in the 90, early nineties, like nobody even knew what the fuck they were. And as far as like trails went, I mean, honestly, there was no rules against us not riding on hiking trails. So like we did what we could, but with the technology back then, there was a lot of trails that we, we couldn't ride because of that. I mean, my first bike was fully rigid. Everything in Giants Lime that year that I bought was fully rigid. Right, right. My bike was a grand. You know what I mean? And so like that, what they called oversized tubing is like as big as my swing arm is now. You, yeah. you know, like, and that was your top tube, you know? And so th things have definitely, definitely changed in that manner. But I think the other end of it is that there's so many more places now to ride. And, and, have, and that's because the bikes are so good. Like, you know, someplace you wouldn't have ridden 15 years ago, you can't, it, like, it's totally rideable now. Yeah. You, you got low enough gears and you have good enough brakes and suspension going down. So it opens up all those doors of possibilities. So I think that's awesome. I think it's great. Um, and then as like an athlete, the fact that like 20 years ago, you, you relied on somebody else to market you. Like you, if somebody, if your sponsor or whatever didn't put you in ads or if you weren't, if you weren't winning races, you needed your sponsor to, to run ads or whatever, to get any value out of you. And that's like completely shifted. Cause now you see like, even with YouTubers getting sponsorship and whatever, like the power is in your hand to activate yourself. Like yeah. you got to do something. Like if you're going to call yourself a pro, like you have to like have something to hang your hat on, but then it's up to you to activate yourself. Yeah. So I want to ask you, you know, being somebody that is a professional rider as well as a YouTuber, how do you see that affecting the, 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 the bike industry? I think that, um, you know, for some, for, for like top level competition, like there's always going to be a place for elite racing. You know, if your company's like DBO or Fox or Shimano, like you're always going to want racing because there's no, there's no better way to develop products or test products than racing. And then also there's no better way to validate products than racing. So that, that's always going to have a place. It's not going to, that's not going to get replaced. Interesting though, because this is the deal. This is the way I thought about it. And you have a company that has margins that they meet and that's how they budget off of, right? So they have a marketing budget. And before the marketing budget would be, this is how much money we're spending on pro riders. And this is all that we can spend because this is, you know, how our budgets work out so that we make profit at the end of the year and we stay in business. Right. And then you throw in now these YouTubers that are like me, you know, that's like, hey, dude, I want you to sponsor me with some tires or something like that. And or like like with Cali with helmets, like now they're they're spending some of that money that they may have used to spend on 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 pro riders 
on on fat fucking guys like me that can't ride because we have a, a, a social like media presence. But I mean, that doesn't all of a sudden make them more profitable now that they're like, oh shit, that, you know, oh, we'll just up the marketing budget by 30%, you know? So something has to like give and take there, you know? Absolutely, it, it, I think it depends on the product. You know, companies, I think for, for apparel companies, we're gonna see a big shift in like them deciding between a racer or you know pro rider and a and a whatever we want to call it YouTuber influencer whatever whatever we want to call it yeah company like there there's going to be some hard decisions if you're Fox Racing or Rock Shocks or Shimano I don't think that that conversations there yet because the reality is those guys are in a constant battle for development between those you know dbo is fighting with fox and they're fighting with with sram for to develop the best products possible and there there aren't guys making youtube videos that are going to test those products to the limits that they need to be tested to to give them the feedback and once those those whole industries are supported by oe spec so we as consumers are going to buy what's ever on the bike like if you walk into a showroom and a bike has a Fox or a, or a SRAM shock or a DVO, most consumers are gonna buy what's on the floor. And those bikes are getting put on the floor because they've won the battle of development and they've gotten the OE spec. So with some of those things where it's like real high technology stuff, I don't think it's gonna, the YouTube thing's not gonna affect it, but for helmets and apparel and and uh, energy bars and things like that, it's, com it's gonna completely shift a little bit. So just a tools, all the things that like somebody could just pick up and give an, a, give an opinion on. I see what you're saying. You know, at the end of the day, you need somebody being a professional racer to be like really testing your product because that's what gives people confidence in it. They don't get confidence from somebody like me. Right. I mean, I, I've seen, like, I saw uh, some interviews recently um, where where like Seth has been compared to Aaron Gwynn and there's like the debate of like, what's more valuable, Aaron Gwynn versus Seth or whatever. Um, if you're slime and you're Diamondback and you're box, like there's no doubt Seth is getting more value than Aaron Gwynn. But Aaron Gwynn, like he started riding for TRP brakes two years ago and he started riding for Onza tires. And, and like, I even laughed, I'm like, really? He's doing the cash grab riding for Anza like tires or or TRP. And now like after two years of racing, there's like a lot of people that'll tell you TRP brakes are really good. There's a lot of people that'll tell you Anza tires are really good. And that's because he's like racing the highest possible level every weekend. And he's giving feedback and telling them that these tires suck or they're good or whatever. And he's bringing these tires to market. He's actually made them players, whereas they weren't two years ago. So it depends what your what your product is and what your objectives are. You know, if it was uh, an apparel company, it's it's probably a toss up. But, yeah. if to, but if you're trying to develop a break, you know, the the top world class racer is gonna gonna be the guy. What kind of? So you're a big dude, like you know, you're as you said earlier, you're you're six four. I think you're about what two twenty something like that. Yeah. So so you're considered a Clydesdale and. Uh, what 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 kind of brakes are you running? I'm um, running. Uh, so I always ran Shimano two piston brakes, but I, but now they have a four piston brake that's even better. So I'm running the Shimano XT four piston brakes, and then I use 
pretty much on everything except like my my long travel enduro bike 180 rotors and you just have awesome stopping power so i was considering getting those four piston xts because i used to have the two pistons and they were they were really good but the price difference wasn't much between that and the saints so i'm i'm a really big dude so i i went with the saints and um they definitely freaking stopped that's for damn sure yeah you you made the the right call for sure the, I, think, I think that shimano this is the thing with was i didn't think my sram brakes were bad in breaking power i i didn't i think the problem is that they don't dissipate heat as well as shimano and so for a guy my size they would glaze the pads and then i'd be getting this chirping which um just was just annoying as fuck. and yeah. it seems to be something typical with sram even with guys that are smaller and when I'm looking at the design of like a Shimano pad with its heat sink on it and the way that their ice tech rotors are, are designed, they, they obviously got the name of the game being like, Hey, we need to dissipate this fucking heat. Yeah. 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 The, uh, the four piston brakes for guys, our size are good. Even if you're smaller, I mean, you can never have too much brake. I don't think so. There's, there's definitely, I've read comments where people say certain brakes are too strong. I can't imagine being a brake being too strong, but I think that's because I come from a trials background where like brakes are your most important thing. I think the only way that you know, and I've said this a bunch of times on my channel, the only way that you know if you have shitty butt brakes is to buy better ones. Right. And uh, like, cause honestly, like you, you, you ride to what you have and you're like, Oh no, these are great. And then you ride with better brakes and then you're like, Oh, Oh wow. Like, like when you get on a bike that has really good brakes, the amount of speed that you can come into something with is so different because you know you can stop in this amount of time. Yeah, you know you can you can feather it and just right in that amount of time, and that that makes worlds of difference. You know. Yeah, it's unbelievable now between like suspension and brakes. How like when you need to shut it down, you could shut it down. You know. Yeah, yeah it's def definitely something else. I'm gonna go ahead and say any of the the people out there on the chat right now, if you guys have any questions for Jeff, go ahead and shoot them off and I'll try to grab some out of there. Um, otherwise, I'm gonna keep chatting with him about whatever the fuck I feel like. You drinking any beers over there, dude? I was, but I'm I'm out. Uh -oh. oh, so you had that Dale's, dude. I just saw that. I yeah. actually do I have do I have like a 15 second beer run? Yeah, you go for it, and I'll just run my mouth. Answer something for everybody. Right? <laughs> so I think it's really interesting to, to have Jeff on the channel. When I met him in Sedona, um, I really didn't know the guy other than whenever the the Richard from Sticker was telling me about him. So I looked at a couple of his videos or whatever and um, just was didn't what, didn't know who he was that, that well. And... When I got to Sedona and I met him in person, he's just really genuinely nice guy. Like you can understand why that he's such a great ambassador for the brands that that he he works with because just a, just a great guy. Like when we went on that group ride, there was probably oh god, I would imagine it was at least thirty or so guys that went on that ride and. And he really did a good job of like, you know, making sure that everybody felt like they were part of the group, like what he was talking about earlier. And I, and I, I really respect that because, you know, somebody that's been in the industry that long to have the like 
it would be easy to understand if they had a little bit of a like, hey, check out who I am kind of attitude. And um, and Jeff doesn't have that. And I think that that's, that's what makes him probably so marketable to the companies that he works for is because he's genuinely a good guy. And at the end of the day, you can't fucking fake that shit, even if your nickname was J-Lo. So, if you want to just keep talking, go for it. <laughs> yeah, no. So what I was going to say to you a minute ago, though, is um, did you get paid by D Dave's, Dale's? Is that Who's the pale ale there? Oscar Blues. So, and they're, what's the name of the pale ale? Uh, Dale's Pale Ale. Dale's Pale Ale. I never actually had that beer. And oh. I your video. If you didn't get paid for that video, I would be, uh, I, I would say, dude, what the fuck? Because you made me go out and try the beer. So For, for which one? For the you did that trials video through their uh, brewing factory. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so, super cool, man. How how fun was that? Like riding through the brewery. That was really awesome. So this is what's this is what's really cool. Like, um, I feel like I'm in such a fortunate position that like, I honestly, for riding as long as I have, and and there have been times in the past where like I've ridden for companies for money, and and I learned. And, it was the first year I switched to Giant. So if anybody followed my career, they could probably figure out that there was one sponsor my first year when I switched from Schwinn to Giant and I did all independent deals. I rode for a company totally based off of what they offered me. And I learned really quickly that that sucked because that whole year was like one of the worst years of riding fun factor wise in my entire career because I was like stuck riding this one product that just sucked. So I tried to make it a point after that to never do that again. And now like, I feel like I'm at a really fortunate place that all the partners that I have obviously are self-serving. Like they allow me to ride my bike for a living, but they all do really cool stuff. So like with Oscar Blues, when I first started talking to them, obviously I thought it would be super sick to have a beer sponsor, but the conversation started with like, um, they were sponsoring Nate Hills. So I knew Nate because I was racing with Nate, whatever, but Nate also has a huge YouTube channel, but he was sponsored by Dale's. And I was having a conversation with a woman that worked at Giant. And I just said like something in passing, like, oh yeah, this one guy rides for a beer company. That would be so awesome. I think we were like having a Dale's at an event or something. I was like, oh yeah, there's this one guy that rides for this company. It would be so sick to have a beer sponsor. And she's like, oh, Dale's my best friend. And I'm like, shut up. No, he's not. And she's like, yeah, he is. So she put me on this like group email with Dale and um, a couple other guys like introducing me and Dale, like, so backstory, Dale, like if you met Dale, you would think he was your me. He's just like a totally normal dude. The first time I ever met him, I had no idea it was even Dale. I had just done a demo and he came over like just in an Under Armour shirt and was just like, Hey, that was a really good show. And I was like, Oh cool. Thanks man. And then like walked away and then like an hour later realized it was Dale. And I was like, Oh shit. Like probably should have paid more attention to the dude. Right. But Dale's just in the mountain biking. So I like, she sent a group email to like Dale and a couple other people like, Hey, meet Jeff. And they like responded like they knew who I was. And I was like, I can't believe that Dale knows who I am. Like I get starstruck all the time. I'm like, how the hell does Dale know who I am? Like, but he's a big mountain biker, you know? So we started talking and it turns out like they have a foundation called Candade and Candade does all kinds of activities to help at risk kids. So they do 
uh, musical instruments to at-risk kids. Since Dale's a mountain biker, they do bikes to at-risk kids, and they do some trail advocacy stuff and and all kinds all kinds of things. So when we started talking, they you know I told them about how I do you know one of the things I do is a lot of uh, live presentations and I do school assemblies sometimes or whatever. So it seemed like it was a perfect fit for Candade. And then, then that stemmed into an Oscar Blues sponsorship. It wasn't just like, hey, let me get some free beer and some money. It was, oh, you ha we have mutual. Oh, we both, we you both got that deal with Schwinn with two free bikes. I take a deal for two, yeah. two the beer, dude. <laughs> That's the funniest part. Getting like actual beer is actually difficult. <laughs> so, so they support me financially, but. And if I'm at the brewery, it's easy to walk out with cases. But when I'm in New Jersey, it's actually kind of hard to like. You got that new freaking, you got that new van life, dude. You should go up there and get like, okay, so I'll take a pallet of that, please. <laughs> but that whole thing came about because they're trying to get more kids on bikes. And I wanted to help them get kids on bikes. And we realized that like we could do cool stuff together. And then they saw my Travel Boss video and they started, they sponsor that series. So that's, that, cool, that's how the whole relationship came about. So um, one of the, one of the subscribers and also a fellow YouTuber, Mountain Biking Adventures, who is in really good shape. So this this question question is surprising to me. He asks, "How do you build up endurance for trials?" He says, "I get exhausted really fast, and at really and he's at the very early stages though." Um, he wow. says, "It seems like even though I'm working all at it all the time, I get winded fast." And he he works regularly at like a, a pump track, like a bike park here in town, and oh. is is out there riding so him telling me that he gets winded he's the guy that likes to climb up like walls and so I'm, I'm really surprised by this yeah if he if he works at the the pump track i would think that that would be pretty good training so it they're totally different physiological requirements like cross-country riding is just pure endurance uh trail riding is a lot of uh anaerobic bursts and recovering like you know when you ride a technical trail Right. You're constantly like redlining, recovering, redlining, recovering. Oh, no, I'm pretty much redlining the entire time I'm on my <laughs> pretty <bed>. redlining. But, <laughs> but trials has always been an anaerobic sport. So like when I um, when I used to compete at trials all the time, and even when I do gym workouts in the in the wintertime, I do like a lot of uh, circuit training where you're doing like a series of exercises with very little rest in between um, and more like full body movement. So I might go to the gym in the off season and do like rowing into box jumps, into uh, lat pull downs, into, you know, some other leg exercise and I'll do short breaks and you want to try to like uh, try to build your body's build your body's ability to do anaerobic work and recover and keep doing anaerobic work because trials is completely an anaerobic um, activity. Like it, it obviously helps to be, be in good shape, but it's a, it's an anaerobics, it's an anaerobic sport. Right on, man. It's all, it's all short bursts and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know exactly what you're saying there. That's kind of like my sex life, all short bursts. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, trail feature says he wants to see you go trail boss on his extra large Yeti SB5 plus because it would amuse him. And, and, that will, first of all, would fit me perfect. And I know those are pretty good bikes, even though I'm contractually obligated to not say that. And and I am super excited. I want to try a plus bike because that seems like 
the uh, technical trail riders like dream. Have you you haven't ridden a, a plus bike? I rode a plus bike. Um, I've rode a plus bike hardtail, but uh -huh. not a plus bike suspension bike. And the same way a 29er, you say like smooth. Have you ridden a plus bike? Yeah, and I'll tell you what, for a guy my size, I felt like this must be what it feels like to be 145 pounds on top regular tires because yeah. I, I had so much fucking grip. It just it blew my mind. Like it really blew my mind how well I could hold on to the trail. Yeah, and it, and it smooths it out a little bit too because the same way a uh, a two niner smooths it out front to back because it's not going in every single nook as deep. It's also not going in every nook side to side, so it yeah. also smooths out trail. So better traction, um, you know, smoother ride. It's, it seems like it'd be pretty awesome to me. I don't know if I don't know if uh, if you'd ever race a, a plus bike, but for for trail riding with your friends, it seems like the hundred percent the way to go. So Jay Hanny wants to know what your favorite trails that you've ridden. Um, that's hard to say because I have you know. So many, but I guess if I had to pick like a, a default place to ride, I just was in Pisgah this weekend. Um, Pisgah, so so Western North Carolina is probably one of my favorite places to ride. That place must just be fucking humongous, is it? It's it's really big. It's it's uh you know it touches Asheville where a lot of the guys live. I I hung out with Bobo this weekend. It was awesome to ride to hang with him. All right on. Yeah. I, so I was at, I was out down there doing group rides and and trials demos at a beer festival. Well, that so must. I, I figured I had to invite him, so he right. came down and we hung out. It was awesome. Oh, that's uh, so. Cool. So, yeah. like, is that like air? Is just a national forest, or is like? Yeah, it's a national forest, and. Uh, then how is there riding in there? Because I thought most like some some national forests you can't do that, right? Um. Probably. Actually, I, yeah, I ride in Tahoe all the time. That's a national. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. Yeah. I was thinking about something else. I was thinking about national parks. I think that's what it was. So yeah, that's probably what it is. Like Yellowstone or something. You probably can't mountain bike in, right? Yeah, yeah. Not yet. I think that day will come though. Yeah. But it's huge and it's uh and it's pretty diverse, so it's cool too. But the reason that I like it is because I live in New Jersey, so. We actually have pretty decent mountain biking here. I just always say it's not epic. You know what I mean? You're not going to go for a five-hour ride in New Jersey. You're going to go for a two-hour ride or something. By after that, you're going to start doubling back, and it just—I don't know. I had Gene out here from Regular Guy Mountain Biking. Yeah, he lives pretty close to me. Yeah, and and you you've ridden Corral and and, uh, and uh, Armstrong when you came out here before. Yeah, and we, we drove up around the backside of Armstrong, and we did about a one mile climb slash hike a bike to get up to the top yeah. of, of the pass there, and then we descended all the way down Armstrong through Corral and everything. So that was like a nine mile descent, and Gene was just fucking blown away. Yeah. Like he's like, I go to the park, and it's still not like this. Like with lifts, he's like, this is just I can't understand how we're still descending. You know. Yeah. And that's that's how I feel like when I go to Pisca, you could literally climb for an hour, hour and twenty minutes. Like just climb and climb and climb and climb and climb. If you go to my YouTube channel and you watch Barlow Gap or Bennett Gap, those are long downhills. Those are, you know, 20, 20, 30 minute downhills for the average person, like no problem. And like you climb to do that. Yeah, so, when I ride in Auburn, I mean and this is the thing. 
it's so different when you know where people live like what kind of riding that you do it's it's, it's interesting when somebody asks me like hey what bike should i have i'm like where do you live you know and, and like out here auburn which is our you know like kind of my stomping ground i mean one of my regular rides is like we're gonna climb for seven miles before we descend at all yeah you know? <laughs> the craziest things um with that with doing like the trail boss videos and stuff like that is when i first started doing it mtv project was a sponsor so i would pick trails based off of like what was popular like a popular trail that people say is super challenging and then i would also go on mtb project which is user generated and look for trails that are double black diamond or black diamond and it's crazy the discrepancy you see between like what a floridian considers a double black diamond <laughs> what an arizonian or whatever you call it somebody from arizona or somebody from colorado what they consider double black diamond because it's not like it's one central rating system it's the locals saying what's a double black diamond right and, um there's been a couple times where like i'll do research and think like if you if you've ever checked out the la mila grossa trail i did in tucson it says you know it's a double black diamond and it says it starts with a hike a bike and i was, i remember going there like being cocky thinking like well, we'll see if this thing's really a hike a bike like sure and i got there and i was like holy shit this thing really is a hike a bike i'm i bit off more than i could chew i i eventually did clean it but holy crap it was really it was like the hardest physically the hardest thing i've ever done the 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 moves weren't that crazy, but it's like at elevation and it's hot and it's steep and it's like unbelievable. And then you go to Florida and there's like this fast flowy trail that they say is a double black diamond. Yeah. Uh, but not to do not, don't let that uh, make you rest easier or whatever, because there are trails in Florida. Like you wouldn't think so. I love riding in Florida. There are trails there that are so technical and so hard. Some of the trails there, those guys do an awesome, awesome, awesome job. I'm just saying, like, I one trail in particular, like, was Double Black Diamond. I was like, oh, this is easy. And I went and did La Mila Gross, and it was, like, impossible. But those Florida trail guys, they, they build some awesome stuff. Mike, biking is so subjective. It's like, like there, there's no real way to, like, really scale how something is because it's so fucking subjective. And it's yeah. funny what you were saying about that trail description because I did a ride locally – I can't remember exactly where it was, but I remember reading online and people were like, oh, this this climb, the first time it's like three miles, it just fucking blows donkey balls, you know? Yeah. And I remember I'm climbing and I'm climbing and I'm like, dude, this shit is like fucking, this is like an awesome climb, actually. Like it's 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 really nice and I'm like having a chat with who I'm riding with. And I, I got that cockiness that you were talking about. And then all of a sudden I turned this corner and the shit show began and i was like oh yeah that was what they were talking about <laughs> um so, go ahead it's funny like when i go to giant which is in thousand oaks i think that's right near worldwide cycle where you've been yeah, yeah, they are right down the street from i'll go there and like the first day or two those guys hand me my ass on like wide open fire roads and stuff like I'll ride and I'm kind of scared going that fast and whatever. And then like after a couple of days, like I could acclimate and, and I'm okay. And then there was a time two years ago, like the guys that are super fast at the office that like I'll fly out there and I'm like, 
holy shit, I can't even keep up with the guys that work at the office. And then they came to Mountain Creek, which is like my stomping grounds, like traditional East Coast terrain, real rocky, rooty, slippery. And like they barely couldn't even ride it. They're like, how the hell do you ride down this stuff? It's crazy. Southern California, that they had that really hard pack with like loose dust on top of it. I feel like when I ride in that area, like it's it, you know, you feel like you're gonna wash the whole time. And and it's interesting too, like even right now, I, I've been riding up in Tahoe and at elevation a lot. So the trail characteristics are a lot different than they are here in the Sacramento area. And I rode Auburn a couple weeks ago. That video will probably be out, out this week with um um JC Trails. And it was it was funny because even in my stomping grounds, I was off because I've been not riding on that dirt for so long. I just did not have like the hookup that I was used to. It really, it, it really shocked me, uh, like how quickly like your mind readjusts to where you're at. You know, it's really hard to be like super well-rounded because there's just so many trail conditions. Also on the East Coast, like we don't have a lot of berms because everything's always so rocky and whatever. So when I was racing a lot of enduro, when I'd go out west and there would be like Burmy trails, I wouldn't do do as well as if it was something really rocky. Like if it's rocky and kind of linear, I could go pretty fast. When it's a lot of berms, like we just don't have berms. Yeah. But if you live in Colorado, you'll rail you rail berms awesome because like you go to any bike park, it's just all berms. You go to Mountain Creek, there's a couple berm trails, but for the most part, it's rock trails, and you're like. Straight line, rock stuff, slabs, you know, baby heads. That's funny. You know, I never really thought about that, Jeff. But, you know, starting my mountain biking career in Pennsylvania, um, maybe that's why I like the Because that's what I love to ride is, like, chunk. Yeah. And a lot of people out here don't ride that. And those are the trails that, like, that I get excited about are the ones that are, like, stupid chunky. Yeah. And, that's what it is is just from you know starting out back in that in that area because that's to me what was the most i love looking at something and like being like dude that's dumb you can't ride through that and then riding through it and being like oh my god wow yeah. like i actually just rode through that fucking shit show you know yeah it's awesome yeah that's that's good stuff man so earlier somebody asked you you know what your favorite trails were okay. and i think that's that's a good question. However, the way that I ride bikes is is sometimes my best rides have nothing to do with the trail that I'm on. And I can say, like, for example, my best ride in the last year, however it was in an epic place, has nothing to do with why it was my best ride. The, la the best ride that I had in the last year is I, I rode with um, Dusty Betty and her husband and a friend of theirs up in Downeyville. And it was preseason, so a good part of the trail was under snow. We were hiking through snow sections and whatnot, but the day was just priceless. Like it was just like really good times with good people, good conversation, stop and like feature, like do this little feature or mess around and like just no stress ride. It was, and just a fun fucking time. You know, we had a great meal when we were done and, um, and, and, and me saying that as well, if you guys watch, if anybody that's watching this watches Dusty, Dusty Betty's channel, it's really PC compared to me. So like, like it, it's not the matchup that you would think that I would say that from. And it was honestly the best ride. So that's what I want to ask you out of the 
23 years or three years of mountain biking, what are the rides, the rides that stick out to you? Um, well, within the past year, I could confidently say that the best ride that I've had was in your neck of the woods and it was on Corral and um, Armstrong connector. It was that, it was that actual ride. And it was just like a perfect meeting of lots of elements. We had a super good crew and we rode it after like a snowstorm, but it was, it was only September. So it was like these big flake snows, snowstorm. So at the very top where you start, we were actually riding through snow and then at below, everything was just damp from the snow. So you probably ride there all the time. That, that trail up is wet. When it's, when it's wet, it packs down. And so I can imagine that if you rode that, like right after rain or snow, I can see exactly what you're saying. Cause that trail is just amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that, it's got those like nice big rock rolls and all kinds of shit you can like come off of and session on and, like I I, I I I can totally understand that. Yeah. Who were you riding with? Um, I was riding with a bunch of locals. Um, just that I met like through the bike shop and one of the demos and stuff. So just a like four or five dudes just riding, and it was the weather was perfect. The the trail like the it was like you're riding on Velcro, and the the sky was gorgeous blue. It was just like one of the best rides. It was one of the best rides I've ever had, but definitely the best ride in the past year. So, so we're gonna ask one more question here from one of the uh, the subscribers, and I think it goes well with your channel as well. Uh, David, who I've ridden with, um, he says, "What is your best advice for somebody new to mountain biking?" So David is just getting into it; he's an older guy and um, decided to quit smoking and get in shape, and he's starting to ride. I went on a ride with him in a local spot, and um, he definitely was was um, not prepared for for. Uh, like a full-on mountain bike ride at that point, you know? And then since then, I know he's done a bunch of riding around locally and he's building up his endurance, but he's definitely in that spot where you're like, you, you remember that first ride that you went out with somebody and they fucking handed your ass to you and they weren't trying to, you know what I mean? You were just like, oh shit, this is what this is about. That's what he unfortunately had that day with us. And so I think that's what he's asking you. What What's the best advice to him? So my best advice would be like, obviously for the cardio aspect, just be patient because if you just go out and have fun riding, it's going to come around pretty quick, especially if you're a beginner because it ramps up quick. So every ride, you're going to notice incremental improvements. So for that, and then as far as like skill, I would say, especially if you're an adult getting into mountain biking, if you don't, like we were talking about earlier, if you don't have that biking background, don't be afraid to go out and plan your bike. Either go to, if you live in a urban environment, just go cruise around town, ride your bike to, to dinner or something, hop curbs, plan your bike, go out twice a week and play for 15 minutes to a half hour. And that stuff is going to help you on the trail. Or if you go on the trail, don't be so concerned with like finishing the ride, stop and smell the roses. If there's the rock garden that gives you trouble, go back and try it two or three times. If there's the, the ledge that you're afraid of, stop and look at it figure out how you can use the skills that you have to, to make it over it. But don't just like ride around it or, or walk down it and not give it a shot. Look at it, you know, don't be so concerned with finishing the ride, stop and play and have fun. And that's when you build those skills, because if you're just always concentrating on like, you have a ride in mind, you got to finish it. 
you're not stopping to smell the roses. You're not stopping to have fun. You're not going to improve your riding. At the end of the day, you know, I always tell people like I ride mountain bikes to like relieve stress, not to fucking create it. You know what I mean? <laughs> So like like just do it for that get out and have fun like that's part of why the motto of the channel is it only takes a bike to be a biker like get out and be one like all you have to do is sit on that fucking seat and spin the wheels and and you're a biker that's it and 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 remember it is fun jeff i thought that was an amazing advice for somebody starting as well as to remind us that have been riding for a long time as well like really um smell the roses enjoy what you're doing yeah. I you dude getting online with me today man that was so much fun having a chat with you and uh i am uh looking forward to you coming out here and, and um putting me through my paces hopefully not on the side of a fucking three thousand foot cliff but um <laughs> i'll pick the ride next time and uh is there anything you want to say in closing it was just awesome getting to chat with you. You know, it was it was great riding with you in Sedona. I'm looking forward to maybe around interbike time. It's going to be in yeah. your neck of the woods. So yeah, definitely, or next time you're down there and you're going out to Giant or something like that, let me know. It's about a five hour drive for me, but if I get two free bikes, I'll definitely come. So um, <laughs> all it takes. I'm a, I'm a skate. Well, hey everybody! It only takes a bike to be a biker. Get the fuck out and be one, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>